Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're talking about the frequently asked questions section of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path that Leads to Enlightenment. This is part of our group learning program where we meet here on Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Thai time. In this program, we study every Sunday a chapter in the book. This book has 24 chapters and then it has one area at the end of the book which is additional content that has all these frequently asked questions these are frequently asked questions that i've received over the years of teaching online and all the other places that i teach of common questions that seem to get asked over and over and over and over again and i decided to create this section at the back of the book because they seem to be questions that a lot of people are interested to understand so today we're going to be going through these 11 frequently asked questions, then we're going to be covering some other additional content that's at the end of this book, which is how to determine if you've attained enlightenment or not. This is another topic that people oftentimes are interested to understand is, you know, how do you know if you've actually attained enlightenment or not? Then we're going to spend some time at the end of the class talking about the Buddha's death and his last words and what he actually happened around his death and his last words to his students. So we'll be spending some time doing that. And as we go, just like always, we'll be taking questions. So as you have questions, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be able to get your questions asked during the class, and I'll be sure to answer those for you. If you're in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and we'll call on you and be sure you can ask your question or any follow-up questions directly. So thank you all for choosing to be here today. Thank you all for choosing that Gautama Buddha's teachings are teachings that are important for your life and dedicating some time today to learn them. And just like everything that I always teach, it's important that you don't believe what I say. Instead, when you learn, then you reflect, you think, you contemplate, you try to understand what is being shared with you and look into the world and see is what's being shared the truth or not. So that you're not actually believing anything, but you're able to independently confirm the truth. And by doing this, then you acquire wisdom and you can practice these teachings as well to help you see the wisdom in them. That as you learn, reflect and practice, that you see the condition of the mind and the condition of your life gradually improve. Because this path to enlightenment isn't about belief. It's about actively learning. And by actively learning and discovering the truth, you have more wisdom about these natural laws of existence. And then you'll make decisions differently in the world than you do right now. 
The Buddha never tells us exactly what decisions to make or how to make those decisions, but he gives us some general guidance that when you understand this natural law of karma, of cause and effect, as well as all the other natural laws of existence, then you'll be able to make wise decisions for yourself that are wholesome decisions and they result in wholesome outcomes. Rather than lacking wisdom, we make unwholesome decisions and they result in unwholesome outcomes for us. So I will start with the very first question in the, this part of the book, which is, how do I become a Buddhist? This is a very common question. Get this one right off the bat oftentimes with a lot of new students or in social media when I'm going about all the different Buddhist groups, you will see this question a lot about how do I become a Buddhist? Well, let's look at this question a bit closer. The term Buddhist didn't actually exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. The Buddha himself wasn't a Buddhist. He was a person who left from the royal family, trained his mind, attained enlightenment, got to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that's permanent, but he wasn't a Buddhist. He discovered teachings of how to live a better life, and he never described himself as a Buddhist. The term didn't actually exist during his lifetime. So we can say for certain that the Buddha was not a Buddhist. And we can say the same thing that Jesus Christ wasn't a Christian, right? Because that word didn't actually exist during his lifetime. Also, when we say, how do I become a Buddhist? This is that I, right? That's that self kind of, you know, the ego wanting to kind of label itself to know what is it rather than just be comfortable with this existence is a human being. The human being that has this unenlightened mind tends to want to have these labels so we can start to identify with these labels as I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Christian, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Hindu, all these other different things that are out in the world. You know, I'm a hard worker. I'm a dad. I'm a mom. I'm a brother. I'm a sister. I'm a accountant or whatever. These labels are just kind of bolstering that self, that self-identity that is in the mind. And then there's also this self-image that's there as well. So getting rid of this label of Buddhist and getting rid of this I that wants to be labeled the way to understand this question of how do I become a Buddhist, the better question is, how do I awaken the mind to enlightenment? Because anybody who considers themselves a Buddhist should be learning, reflecting, and practicing the Buddhist teachings in order to awaken the mind to enlightenment. That's what a Buddhist is doing, if we would like to use that label. So a better question here is rather than how do I become a Buddhist, a better question is how do I awaken the mind to enlightenment? That's the better question. And how do you awaken your mind to enlightenment is you learn the teachings with a teacher. You need to gain access to a teacher where you can gain resources, books, videos, podcasts, classes, personal interaction, retreats. If you're able to sit with your teacher and actually be together, that's just outstanding to be able to be together with the person you're learning with because there's a lot more that can be taught in person versus something like through a book or 
video or a podcast or online. So first, a person would need to decide that I'm interested in learning these teachings that the Buddha shared and decide to seek out guidance from a teacher. And when you're looking for a teacher, you should look for a teacher that you see certain qualities of enlightenment and you feel that this person has the qualities of enlightenment that you would like to learn from them. So you should see certain aspects of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. You should see this calmness in the mind, this peacefulness, this willingness to help all beings. You should see this intention of being harmless and not having ill will. You should see right speech, somebody who's speaking with those five factors of well-spoken speech. You should see somebody who is not harming through their bodily actions and practicing right action, having right livelihood and not causing harm through the way that they sustain their life. Someone who's taking the effort, practicing right effort to eliminate unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities someone who's practicing right mindfulness or awareness of mind can explain the four foundations of mindfulness someone who's practicing right concentration or singleness of mind that has focus and clarity of mind and concentration to be able to focus to be able to teach rather than their mind being in lots of different places so there's these qualities and others that you should look for in a teacher The more you understand what enlightenment is, you'll be able to observe and be able to determine if somebody is or isn't enlightened or not. And the ideal would be to have a teacher who's actually enlightened because a teacher who's actually enlightened will understand the path so clearly and so well that they'll be able to directly guide you on this path and provide you the learning, provide you the teachings that you need. Then with that learning and those teachings, you can reflect on them because you shouldn't be believing the teachings. You should be learning them and then start to reflect on them. So, for example, if we take something simple like the five precepts where the Buddha talks about not killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying or taking substances that cause heedlessness. And he gives a lot of details about each of those. Well, Rather than just believing that these things are good and wholesome for your life, if you understand the training of the mind and that these teachings aren't commandments or rules to follow, but instead they're to train your mind, then you should be able to look at these five precepts and start to understand them from the aspect of training the mind. And if you understand what the Buddha taught is all about the natural law of gamma, by not causing harm to others, we won't experience harm. So by putting out wholesome things, lots of wholesome things will happen for us. So rather than just believing these five precepts, we look at killing the first one. Okay, if we kill, then what's that going to do? There has to be a certain amount of ill will or hatred or anger. We're lacking loving kindness. We're lacking compassion. So if we kill, yeah, the mind is going to have pollution. And if we kill others and we harm other beings, then this harm will come back to us. So rather than believing that this is the best way to live life, reflect on it. And the same thing with like the second precept of stealing. Rather than just like, oh yeah, we all kind of know that stealing is not good. Well, why is it not good? What would happen to me if I started stealing from people? Well, your mind would probably worry. You would probably have fear. There would be some guilt. 
You might actually get arrested by the police and go to jail. You would probably lose friends. You probably wouldn't appreciate the things that you've stolen. And you probably wouldn't take care of certain items in your life in the same way that you would had you earned those things. So we can look at the stealing and we can reflect on it and we can say, yeah, this is a good wholesome teachings that I shouldn't steal. And we could go through all the other teachings of the Buddha and do the same thing. So there's this reflection that needs to happen as part of your practice. Look inward, think and contemplate and consider whether this teaching is a good wholesome teaching or not. And then after you come to that, then you start practicing it. Because by practicing it, knowing it's a good, wholesome teaching, now you start cleaning up your life practice where you're no longer killing, for example, you're not stealing, you're not having sexual misconduct, you're not lying, you're not taking substances that cause heedlessness. And now as you have already learned these, you've reflected on them, you've considered them to be wholesome and good for your life, you now move them into practice and start seeing the results oh, when I cut out wine and beer out of my life, wow, I don't wake up with headaches anymore. The body's not dehydrated. I feel like I have more alertness in the mind. I don't have stomach aches or vomiting. Wow, my skin has gotten healthier because I'm not dehydrated the way I was before. Wow, this is an actual good teaching. It's not just that taking substances that cause heedlessness is wrong or bad or we're going to somehow be punished because of it. It's not a rule to follow. It's a better way of living life because if we take substances that cause heedlessness, it affects the health of the physical body, but it also affects the health of the mind too. That will be more short-tempered. We won't take our time with our children. We won't spend time with our friends and family because we're feeling sick or ill. We're going to notice certain things about our life that are impacted by taking substances that cause heedlessness, for example. So when we learn the teachings, we reflect on them and then we practice them. We clean up our life practice and we see that the condition of the mind in our life gradually improves. This is how one awakens to enlightenment is they learn the wisdom of the Buddha and they don't believe it. They learn it, reflect it, and practice it, seeking guidance with a teacher as you need help. And then as you develop your life practice, making wiser and wiser decisions, you're going to see the health of the physical body. The health of the mind improves. There's this wisdom that comes permeating through the mind. You're able to make better decisions, wholesome decisions in your life. And those wholesome decisions produce wholesome outcomes or better outcomes. And you're not struggling or confused about certain major things that are going on in your life. As you gain more and more wisdom progressing through your life, you end up making wiser and wiser decisions. This is why your Buddhist teacher isn't a lecturer or they're not delivering a sermon, so to speak. They're actually kind of like a life coach, if you understand what that means. There's somebody that you get to know through their teachings and you start building a relationship with them so they know a little bit about your life and you start digging in and start learning their teachings. But then when you have challenges in your life and you're not quite sure how to apply the wisdom of the Buddha to address certain challenges that you're facing, you reach out to your Buddhist teacher and you say, hey, I'm contemplating changing jobs because I'm noticing that I don't have as much time for my family and this job feels 
quite pressured and there's a lot of unwholesomeness in the work environment, but I'm a little bit scared about moving to this new job because the salary isn't as much or something like this. And you might need some guidance based on the Buddhist teachings. A good Buddhist teacher will never make a decision for you. They wouldn't tell you, oh yeah, take that job, go ahead. What they should do is they should provide you teachings from the Buddha and things to think about that help you in your decision-making process. So your Buddhist teacher is just one person out of many in your life that you consult when you're facing any challenging decisions. So you might talk to your parents, you might talk to your life partner, you might talk to your friends, you might talk to other elders in your community, and you also talk with your Buddhist teacher to find out, okay, what are the Buddhist teachings on this? And through that journey of talking to these different people, then you gain wisdom and you're able to make a wiser decision. And once you make that wiser decision than you would have otherwise made on your own, you observe the results. What's the results here? And if you're noticing lots of wholesomeness from that decision, then you know, aha, this is part of that path to enlightenment. Because if I would have made an unwholesome decision here, unwholesome things would have happened for me. But I made a wholesome decision, so wholesome things ended up happening. So more and more, you kind of build up your wisdom of making wiser and wiser choices so that then you experience this awakening where now you understand how to conduct your life with ease based on the natural laws of existence. Not rules to follow, not commandments, but by understanding things like impermanence and discontentedness and non-self and the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, and all the other teachings that the Buddha shared, you gain this wisdom around the natural laws of existence. And as you do, and you gain more and more clarity on what those natural laws are, you'll be able to make decisions with ease. And the mind will experience a diminishing and an elimination of discontentedness, which tells you you're on the right path to awakening the mind because you're noticing situations that once created anger or hostility in the mind, now maybe you're just a little bit of annoyed. And then that same thing happens and then eventually you don't feel even that annoyment anymore. You just feel, okay, that's fine. Just kind of make another decision and continue on with life. You don't experience that hostility and anger and frustration and sadness and guilt and shame and stress and anxiety. All of that gets eliminated through awakening the mind through gaining wisdom. Okay, so this is how one would awaken the mind. This whole idea of how do I become Buddhist, you can just set that aside. If somebody asked me, David, are you Buddhist? A lot of times I just say, I'm a human being. And if they say, what? Yeah, but you, you write books about Buddhism and you teach Buddhist teachings. Well, I'm sharing the teachings of the Buddha. I'm sharing the teachings of Gautama Buddha. I'm practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha. But why do I need to label myself as a Buddhist, right? So I don't think about it that way. So sometimes it's easy, depending on the conversation, to say, yes, I'm a Buddhist, and we just move on. But other times, I might just say, you know, I don't really consider myself a Buddhist. I consider myself a practitioner or a teacher who is practicing the teachings of the Buddha, which is very different than carrying around this label of being a Buddhist or a Christian or Muslim, because once we start labeling ourselves this way, 
then the notion is that we're supposed to disagree with each other and there's somehow supposed to be differences and there's fighting but in reality when you look at these teachings very closely what you see is you know a lot of similarities between what the buddha taught what jesus taught what prophet muhammad taught what you see in the hindu teachings and other teachings you will see a lot of similarities between all of these things so rather than assign this label to yourself just get rid of that self and just think of yeah i'm just practicing teachings that lead to a better way of life and you can see the similarities across all these traditions but dropping the labels will allow you to just be a human being because that's really what we are the second question here i often see is do I need to give up all my possessions, occupation, and relationships to attain enlightenment? Where this question oftentimes comes from is people look at the Buddha in his life, that he was a prince destined to become a king, and he basically gave up that life and went into homelessness. And he attained enlightenment through that process. And nowadays, we have ordained practitioners who do similar things. They leave behind their life in the household life, they become an ordained practitioner and they give up any possessions, occupation, and relationships. And then they can, of course, go in and out. It's not a lifetime ordination, but oftentimes because people see what the Buddha did, they think that that's what they have to do to attain enlightenment. And where I think this comes from is for those of us that have been exposed to Christian teachings, we're often taught that you know, you have to be exactly like Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ was perfect, although I don't think that he was or else he wouldn't be reborn and he wouldn't have gotten angry at the vendors in the temple and tipped over those tables. So I don't think that Jesus Christ was perfect, but we're oftentimes made to think he was and we're made to think that we should be perfect in the image of Jesus Christ and live exactly the same as that. So if you're coming from a Christian background, this question might come up because you're looking at the Buddha and you're thinking, okay, in order to attain enlightenment, I've got to do what the Buddha did. But that would be permanence, right? If everybody had to do exactly the same things in order to attain enlightenment. And if everybody was trying to be like the Buddha. So it's great to be like the Buddha in terms of his life practice and the way that he practiced right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. You can practice those as an ordained practitioner or a household practitioner. You don't have to model his life and do exactly what he did in terms of becoming ordained. You don't need to give up your possessions, occupations, and relationships. But what you have to give up is you have to give up the mental attachment to these things. You have to not crave, desire, be attached, have this mental longing and strong eagerness to hold on to possessions and acquire so many possessions. You have to eliminate that mental longing and strong eagerness towards your particular occupation. Because if you hold on to your job really tightly and then you get laid off or you get fired or that industry dries up, well, then with your mind holds on to it and you identify with being a computer programmer, for example, and now people don't program computers. Maybe we have robots, artificial intelligence that does that. Well, now if you identify with being a computer programmer and you're no longer able to do that job, well, now you're going to feel sad. 
you're going to feel upset or frustrated because now you're longing to be a computer programmer and you can't because there are no computer programmers, perhaps, right? That's just one simple example. So if you have this craving, desire, attachment to hold on to your occupation and the mind isn't comfortable that as life changes, you're going to need to change with it, then that's where the discontentedness or the suffering comes in right? Same thing with your relationships. If you have a life partner, friends, family, children, parents, grandparents, any of these kind of relationships, you don't have to give up the relationships. You can have relationships. In fact, when you attain enlightenment, you'll have even more healthy relationships and probably even more relationships. You'll be able to very easily have relationships with people. But what you have to give up is you have to give up the holding on to the relationship, right? This is why the mind experiences anger or sadness or loneliness when you separate from a boyfriend or girlfriend or a life partner because the mind's holding on to that person so tightly that then when the relationship is over, the mind experiences sadness or anger or loneliness. So You can have plenty of relationships. You just have to learn how to love without attachment. You have to learn how to not have expectations of others and hold them so tightly and allow them to use their own free will and make their own decisions and have a loving and kind and compassionate relationship based on politeness, kindness, friendliness, respect, and trust. Because if you can have relationships that way, then you can let go when you don't have to hold on so tightly. That when you're together, you're together and you enjoy your time together. And then when you're apart, when you're at work or you're on travel or what have you, you don't have this missing like, oh, I miss him so much or I miss her so much because the mind is holding on so that the mind is going to miss that person and have this a loneliness that sets in or this sadness when you have to go away from that person. So you don't have to give up your possessions, occupation, and relationships. You just have to give up that mental longing with a strong eagerness to attain enlightenment. You're going to have to give up your craving, desire, attachment on many different topics. But these are some of the more challenging ones for people. So you don't have to give these things up. You just have to train the mind to relate to these things differently, that you don't hold them so tightly that if somebody stole a possession or it got broken or you lost it, you're not crushed by that, that you understand impermanence and that things are going to come and go out of your life. The third one here is what is reincarnation and rebirth? Are they the same things? This is a very common question that I get and is something to really understand because a lot of people think that the Buddha taught reincarnation. He actually didn't teach reincarnation. He taught the cycle of rebirth. And these two things are very different. The concept of reincarnation is that there is a permanent soul or some permanent entity that comes back over multiple existences and it's being reincarnated. So it's the same soul or the same entity just in a different physical form. But this conflicts with the Buddhist teachings on impermanence, that there isn't this permanent thing or entity that's moving from existence to existence. It also conflicts with his teachings on non-self, that there isn't a permanent self. And it also conflicts with his undeclared teachings. 
he left undeclared teachings. He declared many teachings, but then he said, these are my undeclared teachings. And his part of his undeclared teachings is he didn't teach whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. He didn't teach this as a declared teaching. So because reincarnation conflicts with the Buddhist teachings on the universal truth of impermanence, the universal truth of non-self, and his undeclared teachings, we know that he didn't teach this, and he doesn't use this language in his original teachings. He uses the phrase, the cycle of rebirth, or rebirth, or being reborn. What this is, is this is a new mind in a new form that comes about in each individual existence. The thing that happens from one birth to another is the craving and residual memories from one existence gets transferred into the new mind of the new being. But these two beings are completely new beings. There's nothing that actually gets reborn. So a better way to actually talk about the cycle of rebirth is to actually refer to it as the cycle of new existence. The cycle of rebirth, there's actually nothing being reborn. It's craving and residual memories that's moving from one mind to the next. But the mind and the body of one being is completely different than the mind and the body of another being. So this is really the cycle of new existence. And the Buddha taught this cycle of new existence or the cycle of rebirth, that if there's craving, if there's that mental longing and strong eagerness at the time of death, there is going to be rebirth. That's the fuel that creates rebirth. So if there's a fire burning and then there's a spark that comes up and the wind blows it to another piece of land, now it ignites a new fire. It's a completely new fire. That spark that creates the new fire or that new existence is craving. It's craving that ignites the next life, okay? So if you die and there's still craving, desire, attachment in the mind, not only does that cause discontentedness in this life, but that's the cause of rebirth. What determines what realm you're born into, what condition, what type of life, all of these things, that's based on the gamma or the results of our decisions. So when we were born into this life, it's because our life before this, we still had craving, desire, attachment. And the family we were born into, the country we were born into, the condition of our body, and all these other things were determined by the decisions we made in our previous life, in that previous existence. That's our gamma, the results of our decisions. But once we're born, once this body and mind came together for this existence, now what we're experiencing is based on this existence. So our craving, desires, attachments produce certain decisions and we have certain results. Our anger, hatred, ill will produces certain decisions and we have certain results. Our ignorance, our delusion, our unknowing of true reality produces certain decisions and we have certain results. That's how the unenlightened mind functions, through craving, anger, and ignorance. But we can also function through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. These are the three wholesome roots. Now when we start making decisions through the three wholesome roots 
of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, now we start making wholesome decisions that lead to wholesome results. And now we get to a point where we're not causing any harm to any beings, including this being. And now we clean up our life practice where our life becomes utterly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And we no longer experience a new existence through this cycle of rebirth. The fourth question I often get is, can I be a Buddhist without believing in rebirth? The simple answer here is yes, absolutely. Of course, because first of all, we don't need to label ourselves as a Buddhist, like we talked about in the first question. But secondly, you shouldn't believe anything as part of these teachings. Instead, you should learn, reflect, and practice. By doing so, you can observe the truth for yourself. There's plenty of evidence that exists in the world about the cycle of rebirth. And as you awaken the mind, you may actually observe past lives. You may have actually already had experiences in this life that are kind of observations or residual memories that are surfacing about past lives. So if you've ever had deja vu and you're like, oh my goodness, I've experienced this before, but I know it wasn't in this life, then that's kind of an indication of your previous lives. So there's those kind of things and there's many, many, many more that as the mind awakens, you can start getting evidence to see that this cycle of rebirth is real and true. But you don't actually believe the cycle of rebirth. Instead, you should look for the evidence to know that it's true. Along with that, in terms of awakening your mind to enlightenment right now in this life, what happened in the past in terms of your previous countless existences and all the various realms, it's in the past. It doesn't matter. And if you're going to be reborn after this life and have some future lives, it doesn't matter because it's in the future. The goal is right now in this life to learn and practice the teachings so that you don't have to experience rebirth. So this whole rebirth question, you can actually set it to the side. Instead, Focus on the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, all the other teachings that are part of the Buddhist path to awaken the mind. And if you focus on those things, you might actually get to a point where you actually observe your past lives and then you'll know the truth for yourself. But if you don't and you would like to investigate that topic specifically, that's where you reach out to your teacher and you get guidance along the lines of understanding the cycle of rebirth. And there's a book as part of this book series, volume 11, that really dives into the cycle of rebirth and helps you to understand the cycle of rebirth. And it's all the way towards the end of the book series for a reason, because you don't really need to pay attention much to the cycle of rebirth at this point, because the fact is that you've got this wonderful human birth you're not interested in it going to waste. You're interested in learning and practicing so that you can awaken and get the heck out of this cycle of rebirth and no longer experience discontentedness ever again. That's where you focus your time. Rather than focusing your time on what happened in the past and what may happen in the future, focus on right now, your current existence, training this mind to eliminate discontentedness. Because if you eliminate discontentedness, i.e. you attain enlightenment, then you're never going to be reborn again. So it doesn't matter. And as you see the mind awakening to enlightenment, 
becoming more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, then you'll know that you're never going to experience rebirth again because your mind went from this heavily defiled, polluted, unenlightened state to gradually progressing to this enlightened state where the mind is eliminated, discontentedness is completely peaceful. And it's the Buddhist teachings that helped you get there. And when you look back, you'll say, hmm, I haven't seen my past lives yet, but the Buddha was right about all that other stuff. The mind is completely peaceful. He must have been right about rebirth too. But you might actually observe your past lives. Some people do and some people don't. So you can leave this whole cycle of rebirth thing to the side. The fact is, is that sometimes people say, well, we don't have any evidence of the cycle of rebirth. But the fact is, is that we don't have any evidence that you only get one life. We have no evidence of that whatsoever. We have no evidence that you only get one life. That might be what you were told. That might be what you thought growing up. That might be what you believed all these years. But you haven't seen any independently verifiable proof that you can determine for yourself that there is no second life or third life or fourth life or fifth life. You don't have any evidence that there is just one life. But as you awaken your mind, you may come in contact with evidence of the cycle of rebirth. And if you would like that, you can reach out and I'll help you with it. But for the most part, I just suggest you set that to the side and really focus on awakening the mind to enlightenment. The fifth question here is, what does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha? And is there a ceremony to do this? Well, first, let's talk about what the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha is. Well, we know what the Buddha is. That's the master teacher who lived 2,500 years ago, who discovered the path to enlightenment, shared those teachings during his lifetime, and now those teachings still exist in the world 2,500 years later. And we're bringing those teachings into the world more and more every day. The Dhamma, this is a Pali word for teachings. So it's really the Buddha, the teachings. So that's the teachings that he taught. And the Sangha is the community of practitioners. So if you're learning and practicing these teachings, you're part of the Sangha or you're part of the community of practitioners. And in order to attain enlightenment, you would need to have confidence in the Buddha. You would need to have access to his teachings. And you would need to have a teacher who's part of the Sangha or part of the community. And people talk about taking refuge. What refuge is, is refuge is like a protection to protect the mind, right? Because the mind feeling fear and guilt and shame and sadness and anger, it's shaken up, right? It's not protected. But once you learn by having confidence in the Buddha, you learn his teachings and you have access to the community, well, now the mind is protected. The more and more enlightened it becomes, it's protected from discontentedness. It no longer experiences all those discontent feelings. So the mind has taken refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. So this is how the Buddha looked at it, is that you can take refuge by having confidence in him, by getting access to his teachings, and connecting with a community of practitioners. But since his lifetime, there's been changes and adaptations and people have started creating ceremonies where they 
you know, you come into a temple, there's all this chanting, there's candles lit, there's water being sprinkled, there's things that you recite, and people say, okay, you've now taken refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. But in reality, during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was no ceremony for this. He didn't teach rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. It's not part of what would lead to enlightenment. You can go in and have this water sprinkled on you. You can recite the chants. You can have candles lit and you walk out of the temple or whatever venue you did this at and your mind is in the same condition that it was beforehand because there hasn't been any wisdom. It's wisdom that transforms the mind to enlightenment, not rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. So there's nothing that you need to do in order to go out and take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha through a ceremony. All you need to do is gradually build some confidence in the Buddhist teachings through seeing that, yeah, they're quite wise and they're helping me. Get access to his teachings, which all of you guys have if you're learning here online and you're using the books and the other resources that I share. And you need to be part of the community, which you guys have here. You have a community in Facebook and these online classes and the podcast and different things. And we're even talking about starting to do some more retreats coming up. So this community is becoming larger and larger and larger. So you have the three things that you need in order to take refuge, the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. You don't need a rites, rituals, ceremonies, or any kind of worship to be able to create this protection of the mind. What you'll need is you'll need wisdom to create that protection. So let's pause here and see what questions you guys have. The way that you ask questions is you put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will get those questions asked during the class. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Hi, David. Would you say that it's not only unnecessary to label ourselves as Buddhist, but can it also be detrimental to us on the path? It could be. If you start identifying with it as being part of the self and the self-identity, and you start taking ownership over it, you know, there's people who are very deep into whatever tradition that they practice, and we might say they're very religious, right? And when I start off the book, Volume 1, in the preface, I talk about how the Buddhist teachings aren't a religion, they're a better way of life. But if we become very religious and we start identifying with this label of Buddhist, there might be a tendency to kind of protect it, right? So that when somebody says something bad about the Buddha or Buddhism or the teachings, you might get angry, you might get frustrated if you have craving and desire attachment to this term Buddhist and you are a Buddhist. And now when you hear somebody say like, all Buddhists are whatever, you know, just some uh, derogatory degrading term. If somebody says that and you identify with being Buddhist, when you hear that, it might actually create some anger and frustration in your mind because of your craving, desire, attachment, because of that self-identity as identifying as a Buddhist. So you're going to need to let go of a lot of things in order to attain enlightenment. And when I say let go of a lot of things, I mean mentally. So if you let go of being labeled as a Buddhist, then even though other people might 
ask you if you're a Buddhist, and every once in a while I'll just answer the question as easy, and I'll just say yes and move on. In the mind, I don't consider myself a Buddhist. If it's just a casual relationship where I might not ever see this person, I sometimes just say yes and move on. But if it's a student or someone who's considering studying and really wants to understand the Buddhist teachings, I won't say that I'm a Buddhist and I'll explain to them why so that they get exposure to the Buddhist teachings. So you're not going to have one permanent way to answer a question. This is something that oftentimes we try to develop is like this decision tree. If somebody asks me this question, I'm going to give them this answer. But you don't have a permanent answer for every question. You have to consider all the variables and decide, you know, what's the best way to answer this question. And as a person, I would suggest that in your mind, don't consider yourself a Buddhist. Don't adopt that label. But when you talk to people, you might actually find it easier just to say, yeah, I'm Buddhist. Or you might find it for people who are closer to you, maybe your life partner, or your children, or your parents, or people who you have a deeper interest in your life, you might be interested to explain to them if, that you learn and you reflect and you practice the teachings of the Buddha, but you don't consider yourself a Buddhist because that's just a label. And even the Buddha himself wasn't a Buddhist. So you're more interested in learning the teachings and practicing them to get the results rather than adopt this label that we call Buddhist. Yes, it seems that the, the first five frequently asked questions really drive home the point that it's not about labels and beliefs and rules, but it's about how we relate to the world around us and how we understand it. That's exactly correct, James. Well, let's go to Nick now for our Zoom questions. Hello, Teacher David. Looking at uh, question three, discussing uh, rebirth, and the cycle of new existence, the craving and residual memories, you know, the fire that uh, is the fuel that carries on. Could you describe that? Or could we describe that as uh, karmic energy since your new existence, the conditions that start it are, are, are based on karma? So could we consider that karmic energy? I don't use the word or term karmic energy. The thing that decides if there is going to be rebirth or not is craving and then what determines the condition of that new existence is the natural law of gamma of this cause and effect so it's craving that is the fuel that creates the rebirth and then it's the gamma that determines the condition of that rebirth a uh, question from gloria uh, she writes what about life in other planets regarding rebirth. Thanks. Yeah, so the cycle of rebirth that the Buddha describes, there's five realms. There's hell, animal, afflicted spirits, human, and heavenly realm. And these five realms, the cycle of rebirth, I would suspect that those are the same natural laws of existence that exist in any other planet. That if there's beings on another planet and some of these pictures and images that we've seen of what we call aliens or just beings that are from other planets, I would consider them part of the human realm. While they look different than us, they still are human beings. They might have a different shape head. They might have different shape eyes. They might have different color skin, but they're still human beings. We have human beings on this planet. 
that have those same different qualities, different shape head, different shape eyes, different color skin, so forth and so on, but they're still human beings. So if there's rebirth on another planet in a entity or an existence that we would refer to as an alien, I would consider that to be the human realm. And I'm not sure about if they have animals on those other planets or not. I'd imagine they do, but those are the two form realms. And then the formless realms are hell, afflicted spirits, and heaven. These are the three realms that there is no physical form, but there's existences in those realms. So that would be my answer for that question. Question on uh, number five, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. That's known as the triple gem in our uh, chants on, on Wednesday and Saturdays. Uh, which part of the chant is actually the triple gem? The first, the second, or the third? Or is that whole chant? The first chant that we do, the Arahang Sama Samputasa, that's the triple gem. And then when we go into the Natmotasa, that one is all about the Buddha. And then the Etpso is all about the Buddha. But the very first chant that has the three different phrases, you can actually hear the terms Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha in there because it's Arahang, Sama, Samputo, right? That's the Buddha. And then it continues on from there. Then, so Arahang, Sama, Samputo, Pakawa, Putang, Pakawantang, Apiwate, Mi. Sawakato Pakawata Dhammo. That's the Dhamma. Supatipano Pakawato Sawaka Sanko Sanko Sangha. Right, that's the same thing. So these words are actually embedded into each one of those phrases as you're paying respect and gratitude and acknowledging each of these three as the triple gem or the triple jewel. That's wonderful. Thank you for that, Venerable Sir. No more questions on Zoom. All right. You're welcome. So let's go on to the next grouping. And then after this, we'll get into discussing how to determine if you've attained enlightenment or not. The sixth question that oftentimes comes up is what is our purpose in life? What is the purpose of our human existence? This question is asked a lot in various spiritual settings because human beings, we kind of want to know, like, what's our real purpose? Like, what are we doing here? Well, where this question is coming from oftentimes is the human ego. The human ego that has this arrogance and this pride, that conceit that's part of that, the Mind wants some kind of purpose, wants some kind of higher purpose. There's got to be some purpose here, right? And the, one of the reasons why we have this in the mind is because we have essentially established ourselves as the dominant creature on this planet. At one time, we weren't. At one time, we weren't the dominant creature on the planet. And there were all these other creatures out there that were bigger and badder than us. And at that time, our purpose was just survive, find food, find shelter, and just survive, right? That was our purpose. But now that we've kind of eliminated all of our competitors, pretty much, and we've now become this dominant creature on the planet, the ego is kind of there like, 
there's got to be some purpose to this life, right? And the, the ego wants some kind of purpose. But in reality, there is no purpose to this existence. The mind and all these new existences is just wandering and roaming throughout this cycle of rebirth. It's hindered by this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And it's just roaming through this cycle of rebirth, continuing to be reborn over and over and over again with no purpose whatsoever. So that's what I would say about life is there really is no purpose. There's nothing here that's worth grabbing onto and holding onto, because if you do, you're just going to keep roaming and wandering throughout the cycle of rebirth. The mind's got to be trained to let go of all this stuff and no longer crave existence, right? But that answer oftentimes isn't satisfying to people because that ego wants some kind of purpose. Or you might even feel saddened, like, hold on a second, there's no purpose here? Well, no. I mean, we go to work, we build houses for shelter, we get clothing, we get food, we have children, we do all these activities and hobbies, but then we die, right? There's really no purpose here. There's just all these activities that kind of occupy our time. So you might actually be a little bit saddened to realize like, yeah, there really is no purpose to this life. So if you're looking for a purpose, what I would suggest is that your purpose be to attain enlightenment, because that's what's going to end all of this nothingness, right? All of this coming back and experiencing grief, sorrow, displeasure, and despair, all this discontentedness, all this heartache and misery that we experience as part of life can all be eliminated through attaining enlightenment, where the mind becomes peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. We can eliminate all of this despair and sorrow and experience a very calm and fulfilling life where there's joy always. It's just always there. And while we eliminate discontentedness, we also are eliminating that ego, that part of the mind that wants a certain purpose because we need to dissolve the ego in order to get to enlightenment. So once you dissolve the ego and you get to enlightenment and the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, you'll no longer come back to future existences where there's nothing here. There's just nothing here. Sure, I enjoy looking at the mountains. I enjoy having the sun shine on the skin. I enjoy having conversations and interacting. There's certain lots of wonderful things about this life and enjoyment that you can enjoy in this existence. But if you hold on to any of this stuff, then that's what's going to cause the discontentedness and continuous rebirth. So it's better to let go of this stuff, train the mind to come to the middle where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, where you can truly enjoy life without all this discontentedness. And by attaining enlightenment and making that your purpose in life, then you'll really truly enjoy life and never come back to this life of nothing. The seventh question is, can I exercise the physical body and still attain enlightenment? This question comes up sometimes because ordained practitioners don't really exercise, at least overtly, right? You don't really see ordained practitioners lifting weights and doing these other things. And what they will typically tell you the reason why they don't do that is because it takes a lot of calories to 
physically exercise the body and they typically only eat once or twice a day and if they put a lot of demands on the physical body for calories then they're gonna have to eat a lot more which isn't part of their precepts and it puts more responsibility on the household practitioners to support that so you won't typically see ordained practitioners doing physical exercise overtly but the way that they get exercise is they actually walk they go out on these long walks and journeys and they go hiking in the mountains and stuff like this they will actually walk and the buddha did a lot of walking during his lifetime in order to maintain the physical health of the body so it doesn't mean you can't exercise it just means that ordained practitioners don't but remember you're not trying to mimic the ordained practitioners that's a completely different lifestyle than being in the household life you can attain enlightenment in the household life you don't have to completely model your life after ordained practitioners and what they do because they have different training and their lifestyle eating just once or twice a day doesn't support physical exercise in the way that we might think of it in terms of lifting weights and things like this it's really important to maintain the health of the physical body the buddha taught us that because without the health of the physical body the mind can't stay in this existence and actually attain enlightenment if we disparage the human body and become unwell and sick then if there's death of the physical body then the mind can't stay in this existence and continue to receive training so you would be wise to exercise and ensure that the physical body's healthy and you can do that while still attaining enlightenment but you would like to make sure you're not craving desiring attached to it so if you're working out excessively the body and the mind's not in the middle but if you don't work out at all and you don't do any kind of exercise that's not in the middle either so finding this middle way where maybe you do some light walking here and there maybe you decide to do some other kind of exercise here and there you don't have to be a seven times a week or 20 times a week kind of exercising person to maintain physical health you can find that middle way where you do some physical activity but then don't get attached to it where if you have a certain plan that you're going to exercise monday wednesday and friday and you miss your monday exercise don't walk around feeling grumpy or angered or frustrated or guilty that you missed it because of impermanence you can't exercise every monday morning at eight o'clock it's not possible because of impermanence so what you do is you kind of create this lifestyle for yourself where you put some physical exercise in there but you don't get attached to it and hold it so tightly that if it doesn't happen you walk around angry or frustrated or irritated or if you are very active physically that you don't walk around with arrogance and pride looking down on people who aren't physically active so you got to find that middle and realize that this is about your practice number eight is medicine and medical procedures for the body and attachment so this is kind of a common question that i get about all things you know is this an attachment or is that an attachment is this an attachment or is that an attachment well the reality of the situation is everything and anything can be an attachment it all depends on how the mind relates to it for example this bottle of water could be an attachment if you allow it to be right or it cannot be for example 
If you were outside and you were exercising heavily and you became very, very thirsty and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so thirsty. I need water. I need water. That becomes a craving. That's a craving desire attachment. I need water. I need water, right? The, the mind is maybe even attached to existence, afraid you're going to die if you don't drink water, right? But that doesn't mean that the object itself is an attachment. It's not the object that is the attachment. It's the mind relating to that object. It's the longing. So we can't say that water is an attachment and we can't say water isn't an attachment. It all depends on how the mind relates to it. So if the mind has this mental longing and strong eagerness for it, it's an attachment. If you eliminate the mental longing and strong eagerness and be like, you know, I should go get a glass of water. I'm quite thirsty. Okay, it's not an attachment. So medicine or medical procedures could be an attachment if you allow it to be. But it's not the medicine itself or the medical procedure itself. It's not the object that is the attachment. It's how the mind relates to it. So let me give you some examples. If the mind becomes stressed and has anxiety and somebody feels like they would like to take medicine for that and they choose to start taking medicine, well, let's just say they go out of town, they leave their medicine behind by accident, and now they're at their hotel unpacking and they realize that their medicine isn't in their bag. Oh my goodness, I forgot my medicine. It's at home. Oh. I'm going to get so stressed, right? The mind is having craving, desire, attachment for the medicine. So the medicine in that case, it's not the medicine itself that's the attachment. It's how the mind's relating to it. Somebody else, they pack their bags, they unpacking at the hotel. Hmm, I don't see the medicine anywhere at all. I should probably go see if I can find a local pharmacy that can maybe pull up my records and get me the medicine I need. In that situation, it's the same object. It's the medicine. It's all about how the mind relates to it, right? So the same thing with medical procedures. If somebody, for example, is undergoing certain medical procedure and they feel like this medical procedure, they're scared, they're stressed out about it, or they're longing for it, like plastic surgery. Maybe somebody's longing to have their rear end look a certain way or have their lips look a certain way. Maybe they're longing for it, right? And they think that that medical procedure is going to complete them or they're very fearful of a certain medical procedure. It's not the medical procedure itself that is the attachment. It's how the mind is longing and experiencing this discontentedness because of it. So you can take medicines. You can have medical procedures. We have all of this technology available to us nowadays that didn't exist during the lifetime of the booty. And you can use that to help you. But just be sure, like everything else, that you train the mind not to hold these things so tightly and that you do what you need, that you use medicine when you need it not just because you want to feel a high or something like that, or use medical procedures when you need them, not when you want them just to look a certain way or you're trying to do something particular with the physical body. 
but instead make sure that there's a good medical reason for it. And even then, when there's a good medical reason for it, be sure that your mind understands you're doing it because you need it, not because the mind wants it and thinks that this medical procedure is going to somehow complete you, right? So understand that we can use this technology of medicine and medical procedures, but it's all about how the mind relates to it that determines whether or not it's an attachment. Number nine, what significance can I apply to dreams? The answer to this is nothing. You shouldn't apply any significance to your dreams. If there's some kind of dream and you learn some kind of uh, wisdom that helps you on this path, okay, great. But you might want to kind of confirm that with your teacher to be sure that it's actually part of the path to enlightenment. But in terms of trying to figure out your dreams, what the meaning behind them are, going to different dream interpreters and trying to figure this out, this is just the mind having craving, desire, attachment. Because when the mind is sleeping and there's dreams, the mind's doing all kinds of work You know, when you're sleeping. There's all kinds of things that are going on and you can be dreaming about any old thing. There could be scary dreams, there can be pleasant dreams, there can be all kinds of different dreams. But when the person wakes up, the dreams are in the past. If you allow what happened in the past to affect you now in the present moment, then you're not living in the present moment. So if you had a scary dream and you wake up from that dream and you allow that dream to scare you now, then you're allowing the past to affect you now in this present moment. So when you wake up, if you've woken up from a scary dream, just shake it off like, okay, it's just a dream. It's not true reality. It's not true reality. It's just a dream. Or if you wake up having had a pleasant dream and then you wake up and you feel miserable because your life isn't as pleasant as the dream. Well, once again, you're letting the past, that dream, affect you. So you need to reside in the present moment and not allow dreams to affect the present moment. And also, be sure you don't go out on this quest to try to determine the meaning of your dreams. Because who's to say that if you dream about a black crow, that that's good luck, bad luck, no luck, whatever, right? There's no such thing as luck. It's the natural law of gamma. It's cause and effect or action and result. So there's all these different interpretations that you might get about any one particular dream. And what people tend to do is they keep surfing and going from person to person until they hear what they want to hear, right? And this is the mind just craving and longing and yearning, having the strong eagerness, rather than just reside in the present moment realize that the mind does these amazing things when we're sleeping and when we wake up that's all in the past just let it go just like everything else just let go of the dreams and move on okay number 10 why is enlightenment permanent right people oftentimes think that the buddha taught everything is impermanent he didn't teach everything is impermanent what he taught was all conditioned things are impermanent or all conditioned phenomenon are impermanent. What a conditioned thing or a conditioned thought or a conditioned phenomenon is, is something that arises, something that changes, and something that fades away. That's what a condition is. So this water bottle is conditioned. At one time, this water bottle didn't exist. 
it arose by putting certain chemicals together. The longer that I have it, it changes. And over many, many years, it will ultimately change and no longer exist. Same thing with this mug. It arose from putting earthy materials together and paint and other things. It changes color, it changes shape as it gets broken and different things. And then someday it will fade away. Well, the same thing happens with the feelings in the mind that are based on conditions. The feelings in the mind, you might be experienced contentedness in the unenlightened state. And then something happens in your life. You get a new job, you get a new car, you get a new friend. Now you experience happiness or excitement based on the condition of getting a new car or a new friend or a new job. That condition of the new car, new friend, new job is now creating in the mind conditioned feelings. That feeling of happiness arose, it's going to change, and then it's going to fade away. That is a conditioned thought or a conditioned feeling. And those are impermanent. That's how the unenlightened mind works, is it creates these pleasant feelings, these painful feelings, or these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant based on some impermanent condition. You got a new car, happy. Got a phone call about something bad, news, sad. Somebody dumped some trash in your yard, angry, right? These different conditions. You spend time with somebody, now they leave, you're lonely, right? This loneliness, this anger, this happiness, it's based on some condition. When your friend's with you, you feel happy. When they're gone, you feel lonely because that's an impermanent condition. The condition is the friend is with you, right? Your yard is completely clean. You feel happy because the lawn is clean. That's the condition. But then somebody dumps some trash in your lawn because that is impermanent or some storm comes up and blows a bunch of debris in your yard. Now the yard can't stay permanently clean. So therefore, when things change, these conditions change, the mind now changes its feelings. It's no longer happy. It's angry or frustrated that there's trash in the yard. And that's what the unenlightened mind does is it bases its inner feelings on these conditions, these impermanent conditions. What the enlightened mind would do in this situation, okay, I try to keep my yard clean. I work on keeping a clean yard because that's wise. I like things clean. The neighbors like things clean. The neighborhood likes it clean. So I try to keep things clean. Oh, some trash is blown in. I guess I got to clean that up. Let me go out there and clean that up. But the anger doesn't come because the enlightened mind already knows that this clean yard is impermanent. It can't be maintained permanently. So an enlightened mind has been trained that when it sees the debris in the yard to know that that's impermanence and all I need to do is make some wise decisions, clean that up, and we're back to clean again. Why get angry that the yard is messy for a few hours or a few days when I can just go out there and clean it up, right? The anger doesn't have to come with it. So an enlightened mind is going to permanently reside 
peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing these impermanent feelings that arise, change, and fade. Instead, the enlightened mind has been so well trained that the peacefulness is just always there. The calmness is always there. The serenity, the contentedness, and the joy. It doesn't arise based on any conditions. So therefore, it doesn't change and therefore it doesn't fade away. The enlightened mind has been trained to be peaceful just because it's peaceful. It's been trained to be joyful just because it's joyful. It's not joyful because of any particular condition. It's just joyful because it's joyful. It doesn't allow these changing conditions. It doesn't allow all this impermanence to affect the inner mind. And this is why once the mind is trained to enlightenment, it will never revert back to the unenlightened state because it's not basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. And the way that this happens is that in the unenlightened state, the mind has ignorance or unknowing of true reality. It doesn't understand the natural laws of existence, so it goes around craving permanence. It goes around having anger and hatred. It goes around being unwise or ignorant or confused about these natural laws of existence. Well, the way that you attain enlightenment is by gaining wisdom and seeing the truth for yourself. And as you see the truth for yourself and you gain that wisdom, you will never forget that wisdom. For example, if you've had the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths and you can see clearly without a doubt that it's craving, desire, attachment, that causes discontentedness. If you can see that clear as day for your own discontentedness, and even in other people when they become discontent, you can see that it's craving, desire, attachment, your mind will never forget that. You will never lose that wisdom. You will always see it that way because you've seen the light. You've seen the truth. You've got that wisdom. And your mind is unshakable on that. Someone can tell you, you're making me angry, but you know you didn't make them angry. It's their own craving, desire, attachment that's making them angry. So once your mind gains this wisdom to attain enlightenment, eradicating craving, anger, and ignorance, your mind will never revert back and unlearn that craving is the cause of discontentedness. Once your mind learns to practice the five factors of well-spoken speech and you see how that cleans up all your relationships and you can have relationships with ease, you will never go backwards and start not practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. You just won't do it because you put so much work and effort to train the mind to practice with the five factors of well-spoken speech and that becomes so effortless for you that your mind will never revert backwards and say, you know, I kind of liked it when I was arrogant and I was angry and people used to yell at me and holler at me because I was so arrogant. I kind of like that stuff. I would like to go back to that. You'll never do that. So your mind will have the wisdom of this path to enlightenment and have been practicing it for an extended period of time that your practice will be permanent. You won't revert back once the mind attains enlightenment. In fact, once you attain the first stage of enlightenment, your mind won't regress from there. When your mind is on this path, you can have periods of regression 
or when, even when your mind's in the jhanas, you can have periods of backsliding. But once your mind is in the first stage of enlightenment, it won't revert out of that. You'll just continue to progress because by that point, you've seen too much of the truth. You've seen too much diminishing of the discontentedness that you won't allow the mind to revert backwards. So once the mind attains enlightenment, it's permanent because you're no longer basing your inner feelings on conditions that are impermanent. And you have this wisdom that you now understand the truth and you will never decide to go back to doing things in the old way because there's just been so much progress and you see your peaceful life that there's just no way you'll ever revert backwards to doing things in the way you used to. Now the last one, number 11. Why are donations of support for teachers of Gautama Buddha's teachings so important? There's kind of two different aspects of this. As you guys know, that in order to share these teachings, there's a certain amount of time, effort, energy, and resources that a teacher needs to put into that in terms of lighting and cameras, computers, spending time to actually do these things and being able to have supplies to sustain life like food, water, shelter, clothing, medical supplies, things like this. A teacher needs to sustain their life in some way. So in order to continue the Buddhist teachings in the world, there's going to need to be teachers who are able to share the teachings in a way to help people. But then those people would need to be able to help the teacher to be able to sustain their life to allow them to continue to teach. Any teacher who's sharing these teachings in the what I feel is the best way possible would set up their life in such a way that they need very little money or very little support. They're not interested in becoming a millionaire and teaching the Buddhist teachings. They're not interested in hoarding money. A teacher who's sharing these teachings in the way that I think is best shouldn't want any benefit at all from sharing the teachings. Either esteem or fame or fortune, they shouldn't want any benefit from their students. It should be that the teacher is just genuinely interested and helping others to attain enlightenment, that they don't want anything from their students whatsoever. But even with that said, the students will need the support of the teacher and that person being supported by their students allows that person to focus all their time in helping their students and helping the community of people that they support. So by making offerings of donations to teachers, it helps to ensure the continuation of Gautama Buddha's teachings in the world, that there's somebody who can write books and hold classes and prepare slides and have the technology and kind of help the community to build up their wisdom about these teachings. So that's one reason why donations are needed in order to continue the teachings in the world. The second reason is in order for you to attain enlightenment, you would need to practice generosity. Without practicing giving and sharing, then the mind would be very selfish. It would be holding on to things very tightly and you wouldn't actually be able to attain enlightenment. So while donations help to continue the teachings in the world, you practicing generosity helps to eliminate any kind of selfishness. It helps to help you see this interconnectivity among all beings and it helps you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. It helps you to eliminate 
that holding on the cause of discontentedness and the fuel that leads to rebirth. Without breathing mindfulness meditation and a practice of generosity, you wouldn't be able to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So you wouldn't be able to actually attain enlightenment without practicing generosity. So these are the two reasons why donations are really important to help the continuation of the Buddhist teachings and to help you actually attain enlightenment. Because without the teachings, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. And without eliminating selfishness, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. Without eliminating craving, desire, attachment, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. So the generosity helps to keep all of these things in motion and continue the teachings and help you eliminate those unwholesome qualities that will ultimately help you get to enlightenment. So let me see what questions you guys have on these. In terms of the physical body, how important is it that we have a clean diet and some exercise in regards to having a clear mind? There's a lot of connection between the health of the physical body and the health of the mind. If the physical body is unhealthy, it's going to put added complications to the mind that the mind's going to have to carry around this unhealthy body, you know, in and out of doctors, you know, taking medicines that maybe are helpful, but maybe if you were healthier, you wouldn't need them. It's going to inhibit you from being able to wander around the world and do the things you need to do with the physical health of the body. So if you're living in a country that has a tainted food supply, where there's lots of preservatives, lots of boxed food, canned food, frozen foods are a little bit better. Uh, If there's dyes and chemicals and things like this in your food, the more you clean up the diet and the food supply that's going into the body, This is going to create more health in the physical body, and it's going to relieve some of the pressure and burden that the mind has to carry around this physical body. So the mind will have to work as hard to maintain its health. And by doing physical exercise, the same thing, it lessens the burden of the mind having to carry around an unhealthy body. So in my view, a wise practitioner would clean up their diet. And I don't even really call it a diet so much as more of a food supply. Rather than think about it as a diet of something you only do temporarily, think about creating a sustainable food supply that is based on whole natural food that doesn't involve preservatives and dyes and chemicals and lots of sodium. Look for nutritious food like vegetables and fruits and nuts and things like this, grains, things along those lines. And then implement some lighter physical activity or just incorporate that into your lifestyle that you have this sustainable food supply and you build this lifestyle around being active and physical and that might be a little bit more challenging during covid times but hopefully in the near future we'll see covid kind of moving out we know it's impermanent it's just a matter of time and as you do start maybe creating kind of a lifestyle for yourself where you are involved in walking or some exercise that kind of creates more health in the physical body. This is going to reduce the burden on the mind, and it's going to allow the mind to function more optimally. You mentioned that in regards to dreams, that we should essentially let go of our dreams and perhaps drop what wisdom we can. And it seems much easier to do that with the dreams than in 
what happens and what we consider our reality, but should we also be doing that with the things that happen in our daily life, our dreams, essentially? Is that a type of practice for our daily life? I don't suggest you go around and try to find the meaning in certain things. Like I've seen some places in the world on Facebook and different groups where, you know, if they see a crow's feather, they think that, oh, I found a crow's feather on my walk today. What's the meaning of that? Or I looked at the clock and it says 111. What's the meaning of that? Or all these different things and people are looking for some kind of meaning. Well, the reason why the clock says 111 when you look at it is because it's one o'clock and 11 minutes. And the reason why there's a crow's feather on your walk is because there was a crow that went by and they lost their feather right here. This is the true reality. There's no being or no entity that's trying to send you signals and kind of trying to have you on this mysterious scavenger hunt to figure out what 111 means or what this crow's feather means on your walk. Like I said, the reason why it's 111 is because it's one o'clock and 11 minutes, either PM or AM. And the reason why there's a crow's feather there is because there was a crow in the area and it lost its feather. This is true reality. But if the mind is deluded and it starts trying to figure out all these different meanings and it kind of gets wrapped around, the slightest little thing happens and what's that mean? Then it's not really looking at true reality of this cause and effect. The cause and effect, the reason why there's a crow's feather is because there was a crow here. That was the cause. The action is that there was a crow that flew over here, its feather was loose and it fell off. Or maybe a crow went by, maybe it ran into a tree and it dropped some of its feathers. That's the cause and effect, the natural law of karma. So when we let go of trying to find meaning in every little simple thing, including our dreams, then the mind can just seek true reality in this cause and effect. I've had certain dreams where after the dream, there was some kind of wisdom that I was like, oh, wow, that was pretty deep. Like that actually helps. But I have never gone to somebody else and said, can you help me figure out my dreams? If there's any kind of wisdom that comes up in your dream, you should be able to discern that yourself and use that for your own benefit. You don't have to go on this exhausting search of asking person after person after person, what do they think your dreams mean? Because if you had any dreams and there's wisdom in those dreams, you should be able to figure that out as an independent journey. Other people shouldn't have to tell you things that you believe is the wisdom of the dream. Instead, as a practitioner of these teachings, you should be able to determine the truth for yourself. And if there's something that happens in a dream and you gain some insight and wisdom from that, then that should be your own independent journey rather than trying to seek guidance from everyone else about what your dreams mean. So you should be able to figure that out on your own. And then largely 99.9% of the time, whenever I've had dreams, I just recognize it as being in the past and it's done and over. And now I'm here in the present moment. Uh, sometimes what I've observed in dreams is that my mind is actually holding on to certain things that I thought I'd already released. So if there were certain relationships or certain events that happened in the past, maybe three, five years ago, and I had a dream about that and I woke up and I'm like, hmm, I'm surprised I had a dream about that. I thought I'd already let that go. That's interesting. I better work on eliminating that from the mind because I didn't realize I was still thinking about that person or that situation. So 
if anything, what dreams indicate is just what your mind's holding on to, and you've got to train the mind to let go of those things. Thank you. Let's go to Nick now. Regarding question six, purpose in life, if there's no purpose, what's the point, or is that the same thing? Same thing. There's really no point. There's no purpose. The reason why we're here is because we haven't eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance. That's why we keep being reborn over and over and over again. So the goal is to get out of this cycle so you're not continually being reborn over and over and over again. It's the ego that wants a purpose. It's the ego that thinks there's some significance here. It's craving that keeps holding on to this existence, wanting to continue to exist over and over and over again. But when we eradicate craving, anger, and ignorance, and we let go of the ego, you realize there really truly is nothing here worth holding on to. And while you can enjoy the rest of your existence, having eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance, you're certainly not interested in coming back and doing this repeatedly over and over and over again the way that we have been, because there's just nothing here that we should hold on to. You know, it's, it's really exhausting to hold on to craving, anger, and ignorance and have all this discontentedness. It's truly exhausting to be discontent. So the more you let go of craving, desire, attachment, and all these other defilements, then you'll realize that there really truly is nothing here to hold on to. And the more you let go of it, the more peaceful the mind's going to become. Also regarding question six, Gloria has a comment. She writes, but to wish to obtain enlightenment is craving too. If you have a wish to obtain enlightenment, yes, it can be a craving, desire, attachment. But remember, the object itself isn't what is the craving, desire, attachment. It's not enlightenment that is the craving, desire, attachment. It's if the mind is longing for it with a strong eagerness. So you can actually progress on the path to enlightenment, having an interest to attain enlightenment, having a goal to attain enlightenment, having an objective to attain enlightenment, but it's not a craving, desire, attachment, that you gradually train the mind towards enlightenment, but you're not longing for it. You're not wanting it so bad. You're just gradually working in that direction. So it's not enlightenment itself that is a craving, desire, attachment. It's how the mind relates to this. So what you would need to do is eliminate all craving, desire, attachment, including any craving, desire, attachment for enlightenment itself. You have to get to the point where you're learning, you're practicing, you're reflecting on these teachings and progressing towards enlightenment. And you have a goal, you have an objective, you have an interest to attain it. You're not allowing the mind to be complacent and lazy about it, but you're also not allowing the mind to hold on to it and long for it so much. I want it so bad. Instead, you find that middle. Ah, pursue it as a goal, an interest, an objective. That's the middle. Complacency is one side. Craving enlightenment is the other side. But you've got to bring the mind to the middle where you just apply effort and energy that you don't pursue it as a craving, desire, attachment, but you don't allow the mind to be complacent. It's a goal, objective, or an interest. Holly has some thoughts. She writes, no, this allows want to see past decisions that hinder progress on the path in this life. How can we know that if we are reborn, that we will remember 
what we are learning now and make better decisions. I can share with you that if somebody is learning in this life and they are reborn because they didn't attain enlightenment, they will remember the teachings, not word for word, but it will be in the mind that it will be easier for you in that next life to attain enlightenment, should you attain enlightenment in the next life. But to be able to help you see that right now, there's nothing I can say to help you see that. But if you ever observe your past lives in this life, and you've actually observed that you were practicing these teachings in a past life, and you find it a bit easier for you in this life to learn and practice, and you happen to see and observe past lives that you have learned these teachings, then you will convince yourself. You will see the wisdom for yourself. So there's nothing I can say to you that would convince you because that would just be you believing me. You have to be able to see the truth for yourself. And the only way for you to see that truth is if you observe past lives, you know that you practice these teachings in a past life, and then you find it a bit easier for you in this life as well. Uh, so if you have that experience, then you will know the truth for yourself. But I can share with you that is the truth, and I know that's the truth, that if you have practiced in a previous life, you will find it easier in this life. And if you practice in this life, you will find it easier in any future life. I can share with you that that is the truth, but you won't know that it's the truth unless you see it for yourself through observing past lives. For clarification, are you saying that a stream enterer would know that they done the teaching before this new? It all depends. If somebody say they're they have attained stream entry in this life, and say they've already had two or three previous lives where they were learning and practicing the teachings, and say they're now a stream enter in this life, and as part of their path they did observe that they had learned and practiced these teachings in a previous life, and that's what helped them to get to stream entry in this life, then that person will recall that yes, this is the truth, that because I learned in a previous life, it made it a bit easier for me in this life. But every single stream enterer that is a stream enterer hasn't necessarily learned these teachings in a past life, right? That would be permanence. For clarification, um, I was alluding to more like they were a stream enterer in a past life, mm -hmm. and now oh, okay. this new existence then. So if somebody was a stream enterer in a past life, they have surely learned and practiced these teachings. So they will find that it will be easier for them to learn and practice in this life. And they will either attain stream entry in this life, or they will go beyond that and maybe become a once returner, non-returner, or arahant. For someone such as this, would they recall the teachings or would it just be easier for them? Both of those things are actually can be true, right? That they can recall the teachings and it will be easier for them. But whether they actually know that they practice these teachings in a past life or not depends if they observe past lives or not. So if you're finding it pretty straightforward when you're learning these teachings, you're like, wow, I feel like I've actually read this before or wow, this just makes so much sense. And you kind of easily absorb these teachings. There's a good chance that you 
learned them in a previous life. If you find it really difficult and really hard and cumbersome and it becomes very challenging for you to uh, learn these teachings and practice these teachings, there's a good chance that you didn't learn them in a past life. But what you're saying, Nick, those two things can actually be true, is that you can actually remember and recall the teachings in this life. And because of that, it actually makes it easier for you to learn and practice in this life. Thank you, teacher. That answers it. Mm -hmm. Holly also thanks you, teacher. Yeah, you're welcome. There's a question. There's, a, there's also a question from Johnny. He writes, if we have discovered the Buddhist teaching in this life, we should have few lives remaining, if any, question mark. It depends, because if you just discover the Buddhist teachings in this life, doesn't mean that someone's necessarily going to progress to one of the four stages of enlightenment. There's people who discover the teachings but never actually get to the jhanas or the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment. If somebody gets to the first stage of enlightenment, then they're going to have no more than seven rebirths. But it also depends on what happened in the past, too. But in terms of once they attain stream entry, from that first existence of attaining stream entry, that first stage of enlightenment, they will have no more than seven existences. Once they attain the a second stage of enlightenment, this is called a once returner. They will come back to the human realm one more time and attain enlightenment in that rebirth. A non-returner, the third stage of enlightenment, they will die and they will be reborn in heaven. That will be their last existence. They will attain enlightenment in that last existence as a non-returner. And then if they attain the fourth stage of enlightenment, then there's no rebirth whatsoever. So just discovering the teachings in this life doesn't really guarantee anything. It's all about how you learn, reflect, and practice to improve the condition of the mind. And as the mind evolves and progresses, then that is going to determine your gamma. And your gamma, or the results of your decisions, is what's going to determine how many more lives, if any, that you actually experience. So if you discovered the teachings you diligently learn them, reflect them, and practice, you train the mind really well, and you get to enlightenment this life, then yeah, you're no longer going to be reborn. And that's your gamma. That's the results of your decisions. Well, what were your decisions? Well, you learned, reflected, and practiced diligently. You progressed, and you stayed dedicated to the practice, and you got all the way to enlightenment in this life. So the result of that is you're no longer going to be reborn. Another person discovers the teachings, lackadaisically, complacently, kind of uh, looks at them, you know, kind of does meditation here and there, isn't really well determined. That person, even though they discovered the teachings, can still be reborn in hell or the animal realm or the afflicted spirits realm. Because remember, this practice isn't about just believe in the Buddha and as long as you believe something good's going to happen, you got to do the work. You got to put in the, the time, effort, energy, and resources. So just discovering the teachings doesn't guarantee anything. But what you do with those teachings once you discover them, now you can improve the condition of the mind. And through those wise decisions, now that's leading to better and better results, which ultimately, if you're going to be reborn, will lead to rebirth in a 
better condition. Or perhaps if you get to enlightenment, you'll never be reborn ever again, which is the goal. Johnny, thanks you. Mm -hmm. And there are no more questions on Zoom. Okay. So let's move on to the next topic, which is how to determine if you've attained enlightenment. I wrote this out in the very end of the book for a reason, because in actuality, you should never determine that you're actually enlightened or not. Even though I'm going to share this with you, you should never consider yourself enlightened. It's very detrimental to the mind that if you start considering yourself enlightened, because as soon as you consider yourself enlightened, there's a tendency for the mind to not be interested to pursue wisdom. As soon as you consider yourself to be enlightened, there's a a tendency for the arrogance and the pride or the ego to rise up. And if you do that, then the mind's not enlightened if there's arrogance and pride there. And if you're not practicing that enlightenment factor of energy, where you're progressing, learning more wisdom, then there's no enthusiasm, there's no motivation, the mind becomes complacent. Well, you're not enlightened because you're not practicing the enlightenment factor of energy. So as soon as you tell yourself you're enlightened, that's actually detrimental to the mind. To me, the most wise practitioners, while they may observe these things that I'm going to share with you, they don't ever consider themselves enlightened. They just walk with wisdom and a smile because their mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. An enlightened being surely doesn't tell people that they're enlightened. Because first of all, you shouldn't consider yourself enlightened. But second of all, if someone's going around bragging or boasting that they're enlightened, then you know they're not enlightened because there's still ego and pride and arrogance there. One of the things I usually share is the easiest way to know someone isn't enlightened is if they tell you that they are enlightened. So if someone tells you they are enlightened, that's the best way to know that someone's not enlightened because there's still arrogance and pride, that ego's still there. So the best thing you can do in learning what I'm going to share with you now is to never consider yourself enlightened and just consider yourself a lifelong practitioner and you're just going to pursue more and more wisdom. Because even when the mind's enlightened, when it's eliminated all the pollution of the mind, it's kind of like that's the beginning of the rest of your life because you've been struggling all these lifetimes in this life. You've been struggling difficulties, challenges, having misery and despair, making unwise decisions all this life. And then you finally move the mind closer and closer to enlightenment where now it's been peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy for multiple years. Well, that's kind of like the beginning of the rest of your life. You've got this clarity. You've got this focus. You've got this concentration. You've got this memory. You can have relationships with ease. You can make wise decisions. The world is your oyster. You can do anything you want at that point, anything you're interested in doing. You can accomplish your anything you'd like to do at that point. It's like the beginning of the rest of your life. So convincing yourself that you're actually enlightened can be detrimental. Instead, just know that you've eliminated discontentedness and just enjoy the rest of your life in a humble, peaceful way with lots of joy. So the first thing is, 
never stop practicing the teachings. And an enlightened being, their mind is going to be so well trained that they just can't stop practicing. It's not possible. Like I mentioned, once you start practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech and you see how beneficial they are for your relationships, you'll never stop practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. It's just too ingrained in, in your practice that you would never just stop. So you'll never stop practicing the teachings as part of progressing. And one of the ways to ensure that happens is never convince yourself that you're enlightened because there is no self here to be enlightened. There's a mind that can eliminate discontentedness, but you can't be enlightened because there is no you. The mind can eliminate discontentedness and the mind can be enlightened, but you can't be enlightened because there is no you. So if you think about this and reflect on what I'm sharing with you, then you can come to the conclusion to never consider yourself enlightened and never to stop practicing the teachings, just always continue to learn, gain wisdom, and continue to practice. If someone is enlightened, they'd be fully practicing the Eightfold Path, all those steps on the Eightfold Path to include the Four Noble Truths and the Five Precepts. So if you're thinking that someone else is causing you to be angry, then you know the mind's not enlightened, first of all, because there's anger, but second of all, because the mind thinks that somebody else is causing you to be angry. So you're not even close to enlightenment if you think somebody else is causing you to be angry or causing you to be frustrated, or if you're assigning blame to others for creating your inner feelings, that it's someone else or something else or some situation that's causing your inner feelings. If you don't see that it's craving, desire, attachments that's causing the discontentedness, then you're not even close to enlightenment. So somebody who's enlightened is going to be deeply practicing the Four Noble Truths, the Five Precepts, and the Eightfold Path. You're going to see them always, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Always, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And you're going to see them practicing what we call right wisdom and right liberation. So there's the eightfold path that gets the mind to enlightenment. But once the mind's enlightened and as it becomes more and more enlightened, it's actually practicing the tenfold path. The tenfold path has two additional steps. It's called right wisdom and right liberation. There's nothing to teach you about how to attain these. It's not like right speech has five factors of well-spoken speech. It's not like right wisdom, here's the five factors of right wisdom. It doesn't work that way. These extra two steps that are part of the tenfold path an enlightened being is going to be practicing them. So what right wisdom is, is an enlightened being will be able to explain the teachings with ease. They'll have understood them, reflected on them, and practiced them so deeply for an extended period of time that they will be practicing right wisdom in that if anybody asked them a question or a discussion, they would be able to easily explain the teachings because they're practicing right wisdom. So everything else on the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings leads to right wisdom, that you're able to easily explain the teachings because you're practicing right wisdom. 
And right liberation is the mind has been liberated where it no longer experiences discontentedness. So an enlightened being, there's not anything extra you need to do in order to practice right liberation. But because somebody is practicing the Eightfold Path, they will experience right liberation. So right wisdom and right liberation are something that you experience and you practice as a result of practicing the Eightfold Path. So this is called the Tenfold Path. So you'll see an enlightened being that is practicing the Tenfold Path. When you fully attain enlightenment as an Arahant, you have eliminated all the ten fetters. So in chapter three, there's ten fetters or ten pollutions of mind, ten taints. These are the ten things that are holding the mind back from attaining enlightenment. And once the practitioner completely eradicates these ten things, then the mind is enlightened. These are things like personal existence view, doubt, wrong observances and wrong behaviors, sensual desire, ill will, desire for form, desire for formless, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. These are the 10 fetters. So you would need to learn these 10 fetters deeply, and then you would need to learn how to eradicate them. But the mind isn't ready to eradicate them until you've done all the preliminary work of building up your practice to the Eightfold Path. You have to first build up your practice of the Eightfold Path to kind of prepare the mind to release these 10 fetters. You wouldn't be able to just go in and get rid of the 10 fetters. You would need to first do all the preliminary work as a foundation that's a part of the Eightfold Path to then prepare the mind and make it ready to let go of these 10 fetters. You would have cultivated a mind that is completely practicing the Brahma Viharas. If you remember back to chapter 14, the Brahma Viharas are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These are four healthy mind states or mental states that the mind is practicing all the time. So loving kindness is active goodwill, a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. Compassion is a concern for the misfortune of others. Sympathetic joy is to have joy in others' success, whether you contributed to it or not. Equanimity is evenness of temper, calmness, composure, especially in difficult situations, and treating people impartially. So if you're practicing the Brahma Viharas in all situations, then the mind is having one aspect of what it takes to actually attain enlightenment. If you're practicing the seven factors of enlightenment, once again, this is in chapter three, these are not indications if you have attained enlightenment, but you would be practicing these in order to attain enlightenment. These are things like mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are seven factors that you need to understand as another tool to move the mind to the middle. When the mind is sluggish, you practice investigation, energy, and joy. When the mind is excited, you practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity to bring the mind to the middle. And then you always practice mindfulness or awareness of mind. So these are seven factors that you will need to learn and understand in order to bring the mind to the middle. 
But then an enlightened being is going to be practicing these things all the time, all seven factors. And then this last thing is that you'll know that you've attained enlightenment because you will have eliminated 100% of all discontentedness. The mind will never again experience conditioned feelings based on some condition. It won't hold on to conditions to create these inner feelings. So you won't experience conditioned happiness, excitement, thrill, euphoria. You'll still have joy. You'll still laugh. You'll still find things funny. You'll still have a great time because you're no longer experiencing any discontentedness, but you won't allow these conditioned experiences or these impermanent conditions to create those inner feelings those inner feelings will just always be there. So you will have eliminated pleasant feelings that are based on some impermanent condition. You will have eliminated painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. You will no longer base your inner feelings on impermanent conditions, experiencing painful feelings inwardly based on these impermanent conditions that will all be eradicated. Even the slightest little ickiness, like, oh, I kind of just, oh, I don't really like that. Oh. That'll even be eradicated from the mind. It'll just be completely bright and brilliant. You will also eliminate the neither painful nor pleasant that are based on these conditions. The boredom, the loneliness, the shyness, the unsatisfactoriness, the displeasure, you will eliminate all of that from the mind as part of attaining enlightenment. Now today, you might experience a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, where you're experiencing that peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, but then discontentedness comes back in because the mind is not fully enlightened, right? So you might be experiencing this kind of like what I would call temporary enlightenment, Right? Enlightenment is permanent. But if we want to call it like a temporary enlightenment, we're like even just a few minutes, right? Maybe in meditation. Maybe you have a few seconds in meditation where you're just utterly peaceful. The mind is completely still. It's completely quiet. And it's like, oh my goodness, this is just outstanding, right? This is quite wonderful. You might even be getting a couple seconds of that during meditation. That's almost like temporary enlightenment. And then when you carry that with you in your day and you observe that, yeah, the mind's quite still, it's quieted, it's quite content and peaceful, you might be experiencing enlightenment for a few minutes or a few hours or a few days. But an enlightened being is going to experience months and years where the mind doesn't experience any discontentedness. As you're making your way to enlightenment, it's like the light is flickering. You might go three months or six months where there's no discontentedness at all. And then boom, something will come in, right? You might go uh, a few weeks or a few months and then boom, something happens and there's some discontentedness. That's why you should never convince yourself you're enlightened. Because if you go a month or two or three without any discontentedness and you convince yourself that you're enlightened, now the arrogance and ego comes in Boom, here comes some discontentedness to crush that thought that you were enlightened, right? So if you're experiencing two, three, four, five, six months of peacefulness, just stay in the middle. 
steady, calm, unaffected. Don't get this pleasure because you think you're enlightened because that's an impermanent condition, right? Don't get these pleasant feelings of happiness because you've had so much peacefulness. That's an impermanent condition. So if you're experiencing peacefulness, contentedness, for a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, hmm, that's nice. All this work's paying off. Just stay unaffected. I talk about this as being naked in the middle of your street. If you're naked in the middle of your street and the sun is shining on you, be unaffected by the sun. If you're standing in the middle of your street and you're naked and it starts raining on you, be unaffected by the rain. Just be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, not basing any inner feelings on any impermanent conditions. And as the mind eliminates 100% of discontentedness, then you know over the last two years, the last three years, the last five years, oh, that's interesting. No discontentedness. The Buddha sure is a very wise man, right? But if you take pleasure in the fact that the mind is enlightened, then that's an impermanent thing. That's a conditioned feeling. You're conditioning your pleasant feelings on the fact that you think your mind is enlightened. So that's why it's better to just never convince yourself that you're enlightened. So what questions do you guys have on this? You mentioned in the book, David, that we should always be focusing on the step ahead of us on the path. I was wondering, is it ever fruitful to consider enlightenment? To consider enlightenment? Yes. Is it ever fruitful to really consider that concept? Or is it something that we should not really have in our minds because we're focused on what's immediately ahead of us? Um, I'm not sure I'm understanding your question, James. Uh, I suppose I'm asking, is it beneficial to think about enlightenment and what that would be like and or is it just best to kind of focus on our practice oh okay i see i think it is helpful to understand enlightenment and what it is because the more you understand the goal the more you can work towards it and that's why i spend chapter three talking about what enlightenment is because it's kind of like if you were going to a new town that you've never been to before somebody would have to say hey are you interested in going to nashville tennessee haven't ever been to that. I have, but haven't ever been to Nashville, Tennessee. What's that like? Oh, there's some country music. There's some places we can get some uh, good food. There's this, there's that. There's, there's some interesting things to see. Huh, that sounds interesting. Sure, let's go. So now somebody hands you a map and says, this is how to get to Nashville, Tennessee. Well, now you start following this map. If you know what's at Nashville, Tennessee, when you arrived in Nashville, Tennessee, you'll know you're in Nashville, Tennessee, because I see all these signs with country music and I see a bunch of people learning about country music or sharing country music. But if you didn't know what was at Nashville, Tennessee, you would never you wouldn't know how to get there. You wouldn't know once you arrived. You may not even be interested to go if you didn't know what was there. So by understanding what enlightenment is, it can make you interested to go. It can help you get there. And once you've arrived, you'll know that you've arrived. So I think it's very wise to understand what enlightenment is. But in all of that understanding, just ensure the mind doesn't crave it. And it's kind of common for people when they first find out about enlightenment to actually crave it. 
I've had plenty of students that have had that experience because, you know, we go around with all this anger, this sadness, this despair, this grief. Hold on a second. That's optional. I can get rid of all of that. I had no idea. And then the more that you learn about enlightenment, the mind starts craving this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So if you notice that arising in your mind, or it is in your mind now, <clears throat> you have to eradicate that. Just understand what enlightenment is so that you can work towards it, but don't allow the mind to crave it. I have a question on Facebook from Rastislav. Would it be correct to say Sarapana has seven existences remaining to reach Arahant level, but within each such existence, humans can be born multiple times? That's not true because at Sotapanna, or what we call stream entry, the first stage of enlightenment, there's a maximum of seven times. So someone could attain stream entry in this life, die, then come back and attain enlightenment in that next life, that second life. It's not their second total life, but their birth right after their first stage of enlightenment. So they're not going to experience seven lives. It's a maximum of seven lives that they're going to experience. We have a question from Denise as well. Will it create bad karma if I give to goodwill my other Buddhist practice books? No, not at all, because you're practicing generosity and by giving and sharing, that's completely fine. And you're training the mind to let go because, you know, you're not holding on, you're sharing, you're giving. So there's no uh, unwholesome results whenever you're practicing generosity, which is giving and sharing. Let's go to Nick now for any further questions. If enlightenment's the goal, then these, this list of six things uh, would, would be the things that we're practicing. I was wondering if you can touch on the, the unwholesome mental functions and, and what the Brahma Viharas are antidotes to, such as um, loving kindness and ill will, or sympathetic and altruistic joy is the antidote to jealousy. Okay. Um, can we just review those real quick? Sure. So the main high-level description of why the mind's unenlightened is craving anger and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. These things are discussed in chapter 8, and that's like a high-level description. But a deeper understanding of the problems in the mind is found in the Ten Fetters, which is a, the Buddha is very well known for this, as having kind of a layered effect of kind of pulling back the layers and get deeper and deeper. So Craving, anger, ignorance is like the first layer to understand. And then the 10 fetters is like this deeper layer to understand truly, specifically, what are the individual taints or pollutions of the mind. So those are the problems that keep the mind in the unenlightened state. The second question you have about the Brahma Viharas, there's loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So loving kindness or a genuine interest and seeing all beings be well and peaceful, that antidotes anger, hatred, and ill will, along with all the lesser versions of that. It also antidotes things like resentment. The compassion or the concern for misfortune, this antidotes indifference, right? Non-caring, right? Then there's sympathetic joy, which is having joy for other success, even if you didn't contribute to it. This antidotes jealousy. Then there's equanimity, which is calmness, composure, evenness of temper. 
This equanimity antidotes an overactive mind. So if your mind is overactive and constantly on the go, uncalm, unattentive, distracted, shaken up easily, equanimity will antidote that. The second part of equanimity is treating all beings equally and fairly. So it helps to antidote any prejudices or discrimination or things like racism or looking down on people. It even helps to eradicate arrogance and pride that you just consider everybody is equal. And you can see more details on this in chapter 14 for the Brahma Viharas. Thank you, teacher. No, que- no other questions on Zoom. Okay, so I thought what I would share with you guys is some of the last words of the Buddha prior to his death. There's a big myth out there that the Buddha actually ate a poisonous sandwich and that's what killed him. That's a huge myth. I think it's actually kind of comical because that would be the Buddha committing suicide, right? Or or causing death by suicide. Uh, The story is that the the fake story, the mythical story, is that there was somebody who was about to eat a sandwich that had poison in it. And the Buddha is enlightened, so enlightened, he knew that this sandwich had poison in it. And he instead takes the sandwich for himself and he ate it. And then that's what killed him. No, a Buddha doesn't do that. If a Buddha actually knew that there was poison in the sandwich, he would have taken the poisonous sandwich and thrown it away. Right. He's not going to actually eat it. Right. So there's no need to actually eat it to help this person not eat a poisonous sandwich. He could have just taken it and thrown it away. So that story is not correct whatsoever. The Buddha knew three months before he died, he actually, in one of his discourses, he shared with his students that he will die in three months. He knew, he was so enlightened, he knew he was going to die in three months. And he told everybody this, right? And he started delivering his last teachings, kind of giving everyone a heads up. Okay, I'm going to be dying. So if there's anything that you are interested in learning, let me know kind of thing. But he said it much more eloquently, of course. So he shared with everyone that he was going to die in three months. And then he ultimately gave his very last discourse. He spoke his last words and he laid his head down and he died. So that's how enlightened this man was that he knew three months before that he was going to die. And he knew the moment he was going to die because he spoke his last words and then he died. And his last words were part of his teachings. This particular teaching that I'm sharing with you now are not his last words, but I have his last words that I'm going to be sharing with you in a moment. But first, I would like to share this with you because this was kind of part of the ending days of his life where he had spent 45 years sharing these teachings There were countless enlightened people that had attained enlightenment, and now he knew he was going to die, and these people were going to be left behind with his teachings. So he says to them, he says, Wonder forth, O monks, for the welfare of the multitude, for the peacefulness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good, welfare, and peacefulness of heavenly beings and humans. Because heavenly beings and humans are the ones that can attain enlightenment. So, you know, he's saying, you know, wander forth for their peacefulness. Teach, O monks, the teachings that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing. 
So what his teachings are is that your discourse, when you teach, it should be good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So if I was like to start off our talks really well, and then I kind of died out towards the end, my energy wasn't there, that's not good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. That's good in the beginning, but then you kind of fade out over time. The Buddhist teachings are to remain vigilant and provide good, wholesome teachings throughout your entire discourse, beginning, middle, and end, with the right meaning and phrasing. So in other words, don't slack off about applying accurate and precise and concise wording that really communicates the meaning of his teachings. Ensure you have the right meaning and phrasing as you deliver discourses. Very precise, precision discourses. So that's what he's sharing here. Make sure it's good in the beginning, middle, and end, and it has very well thought out, precise meaning and phrasing. Reveal the perfectly complete and purified holy life. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are falling away because they do not hear the teachings. There will be those who will understand the teachings. So if you think about the enlightened mind sleeping and it needs to awaken to enlightenment, it's the same thing when the physical body's sleeping and then it needs to gradually wake up in the morning. Well, you've got a little bit of dust in the eye, right? You gotta clear out that little bit of dust in the eye so that you can see clearly. And that's what you do in the morning if you wake up and you've got a little bit of dust in your eye. So the Buddha is saying, essentially, there's beings out there that have very little unwholesomeness in their mind, very little ignorance or very little anger or very little craving, right? Very little dust. And they're falling away, meaning they're continuing to be reborn. They're not attaining enlightenment. So He's saying, reveal this perfectly complete and holy life to these beings so they can clear out this little bit of dust in their eye. There will be those who will understand the teachings. Because one of the rare things in the world is to have somebody that actually understands these teachings and has the willingness, the diligence, the determination, the dedication to actually apply effort to learn. Because it's not easy to attain enlightenment. It's not difficult. We make it more difficult sometimes, but it's not easy either. So it requires people to truly dig in and be willing to understand. The next thing that I would like to share with you is something that I put at the end of the book. There's a couple of things I put there, but at the very end of the book, I put this. I say the only war worth waging is the war within the mind. Win that war and you have won everything because when the mind is in the unenlightened state, there's times where you feel like you're at war with the mind. The mind wants to do this and you're pulling it back. And then it wants to do that and you're pulling it back. It becomes discontent and you're struggling to see, how am I causing this discontentedness? He just punched me in the face. He's making me angry. How did I cause it? Or this person yelled at me. He's the one who made me angry. How did I cause that, right? So the mind is almost like at war with itself. And there's only one type of war that's really worth waging, and it's this war within the mind. And once you win that war, you've won everything because the mind's going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. 
I've never actually seen any actual war with guns and knives and soldiers that has actually been a win, right? Nobody ever wins in a real true war. Both sides actually lose. There's lots of losing in war. But this war that's waging inside the mine, you can actually win that war. And then the mind is going to experience all this peacefulness and contentedness and joy once you do. So wage that war, not any wars in real life with your life partner, with your children, with your boss, with your coworker. Don't war with all of these people and all these situations. Win the war that's going on inside the mind and then you've won everything. This is one of the last teachings of the Buddha, but his last, last teaching is next. The Buddha says here, one who sees me sees the teachings, and one who sees the teachings sees me. He delivered this towards the end of his life. When he was giving that discourse three months before he died, some of his students were coming to him and crying and weeping, right? Because they weren't yet enlightened. And they were essentially attached to the Buddha. When he said, hey, I'm going to be dying, there were people that were weeping and crying because they were attached to their teacher, which was inhibiting them from attaining enlightenment. So there was this one person in the back who was actually meditating and others were weeping and sorrowful. And they actually complained to the Buddha. They were like, look at that guy back there. He's not even concerned about you. He's not worried. Look at him. And the Buddha actually said, well, it's you that actually are, are causing your own problems. He's doing what I taught. You guys are the ones who aren't actually practicing the teachings. You're attached to me, essentially, right? This is why you're sorrowful. He's the one who's practicing the teachings. So he said, like, you don't need this physical body that he had delivered all the teachings over 45 years, that you don't need this physical body in order to continue to practice the teachings. So what he said is, he, he said, one who sees me sees the teachings. So in other words, he was a living, walking, breathing example of his teachings. So if you see him in the physical form, then you see the teachings. You see him practicing the teachings. And then likewise, when that physical form is gone, if you've deeply learned the teachings and you see them in the world around you, then one who sees the teaching sees me. So if you know his teachings on the universal truth of impermanence, and you know he taught that, and every time you see impermanence happening in your life, you see the Buddha. If you understand discontentedness and you understand the cause of discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment, and every time you see discontentedness and you observe the craving, desire, attachment, you saw the teachings, you saw the Buddha. If every time you practice generosity or someone practices generosity with you and that has a certain feeling with it, then when you practice generosity, and you feel like, wow, that was nice to practice generosity. And wow, they're so joyful when I practice generosity. You're seeing the teachings. You see the Buddha. When you practice right speech, the five factors of well-spoken speech, and you see that it helps you in your personal relationships and it clears up any problems in your relationships, well, one who sees the teachings sees the Buddha. 
So the more you understand his teachings and you practice them and you see them in the world, right? You see a politician who's gossiping and slandering somebody. And then a couple of days later, someone's gossiping and slandering that person. Well, that's gamma, isn't it? We're not saying it's right or wrong, but that's gamma, right? That's the natural law of gamma. Well, right in that situation, you see the natural law of gamma. You see the Buddha. So you will have no doubt in your mind that this being walked the face of this earth. The more you understand his teachings, the more you reflect on them, the more you practice them, and you see the condition of the mind improving, you won't believe that he actually walked the face of this earth. You will know it for sure because one who sees the teachings sees me. You don't need his physical body to be here that the more you learn his teachings, you'll actually see him in the world around you everywhere, right? But you have to study the teachings to be able to see him everywhere in the world. Now, this is his last words and the last thing that I have to share with you guys today. Here are the Buddha's last words. This is his very last words before he lays his head down and dies. So he teaches from the time he awakens from enlightenment for 45 years and he teaches all the way till the end, his last words, a true Buddha, continuing to help the world all the way to his last breath. He says, Ananda, which is one of his closest students, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this, Ananda, for what I have taught and explained to you as teachings and discipline will at my passing, be your teacher. Now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. And then he lays down and dies. He puts his head down and dies. So he's a teaching impermanence, right? The very last teaching, he teaches impermanence. He's saying even his own physical body, even the physical body of the Buddha, is impermanent. It's conditioned. It arised, it changed, and then it faded away. It's a nature to decay. And then he says, strive on untiringly. You know, keep applying effort and energy towards learning and practicing the teachings and sharing them. If you are ordained, which he was talking to the ordained practitioners, you're sharing the teachings. So, his students might think that once he dies, the instruction has ceased. Don't see it this way, right? What he shared during his lifetime, what he explained to them, will on his passing be their teacher. So just continue to learn and practice his teachings, and that's your teacher, is the teachings that he shared. So that's the final words of the Buddha. And what I'll do is just kind of open up to see if you guys have any residual questions now that we went through that last little bit of content. And there are no more questions on social media, David. Okay. Anything on Zoom, Nick? Nothing on Zoom, Teacher David. Okay. Well, I'll just end today with sharing with you guys that we have two more classes. We have Wednesday, we have loving kindness meditation that we're going to all be doing together. And then next Sunday, the very last class of this iteration of the group learning program, we're going to be talking about the five hindrances. This is something that's not in the book. I didn't put this in the book, the very first book, volume one. 
Instead, I teach it as a class at the very end of this program. The five hindrances are the five primary things that are going to keep you from attaining enlightenment. And if you learn these, then you can be looking out for them and aware of them if they arise in the mind. And I'm also going to be teaching you the antidote. So if any of these five things arise in the mind, I'm going to be giving you the solutions of how to fix them because that's what you would like to do. If something like complacency arises in the mind, this is a hindrance if there's complacency. Well, how do you fix complacency? Okay, so I'm going to share that with you next Sunday. So that'll be our last official class is the five hindrances. And then on Wednesday, September 1st, we're going to restart this program all over again so that you guys can continue to learn because this second time or third time you go through this program, you will absorb things in a different way than you did the first time through. Or if you would like to move into the Pali Canon and English study group, that's on Saturdays at the same time, nine o'clock Thai time. You're welcome to join Sunday, Wednesday and Saturday if you like. Or if you would like to just repeat this program, you can do Sunday and Wednesday. Or if you would like to just do the Pali Canon program, that's on Saturday. But I offer all these online classes for you to learn and practice along the way in order to progress to enlightenment. So thank you all for continuing to learn and practice. I imagine you guys will be joining for next Sunday. But since this is kind of a little bit like a little bit of an end to our program, I would just like to take a moment to thank Manal, James, Nick, and Bossom for all of your effort to moderate these classes. I know that the students probably really appreciate your effort and your energy to be able to spend your time to look at the questions and feed those into me so that I can stay focused on the teaching. So I would just like to thank all of the moderators for all their hard work and applying time, effort, energy, and resources to practice generosity in helping us to conduct our classes. I would also like to thank all of you students, those of you guys that are in attendance now and those that are listening back to this on the replay, either on Facebook, YouTube, or the podcast, because all of you guys learning and practicing these teachings, the more that we learn and we actually practice them, then we bring these teachings into the world that help our life it helps the life of the people around us and it helps all of humanity. So we can actually bring these teachings into the world in a way that really helps humanity long into the future. So this book series, I titled it The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. Because in a lot of ways, the Buddhist teachings are really hidden. You know, I grew up in America Every hotel room, everywhere you go has a Bible because it's just one small book with a whole bunch of little tiny books inside of it. But the Buddhist teachings are spread over 45 volumes of books. You can't put that in every hotel room and they're quite hidden. You kind of need somebody who's dug into the teachings and can share them with you in a way that connects with you and helps you learn and practice them. So what we're doing in these group learning program and the Pali Canon English Study Group, all the books that I'm sharing, the podcast, all the work that's being done by me and others that are helping me, we're revealing the hidden. We're revealing the hidden of the Buddhist teachings. And you're able to bring this into your life. You're able to practice it. And by you practicing the teachings, it improves your life, the life of those close to you and all of the world. So I would like to thank you 
for being a very dedicated, determined, and diligent student. And I'm interested in continuing to support you, continue to encourage you, and continue to motivate you along this path. And as you need help, I'm here to support you in all the different ways that I do that. So thank you all for everything that you've done to have this program go forward and continue to go forward. I'll see you in a future class, either on a Sunday, a Wednesday, or a Saturday. Have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.